you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. That's found on page 911. And the immediate context of this morning's reading is, is what we looked at last week. Remember Peter and John, they went to the temple to pray, and they met this layman. They met this man who was disabled from birth. He, he could not walk. And the man asked Peter and John for alms. He asked for money. And Peter said to the man, he says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. And then he said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the text tells us that immediately, immediately the man's legs and ankles were strengthened and he went walking and leaping and praising God. And as you would imagine, such a dramatic and, and such a visible healing was certain to draw the attention of, of all the people in the temple. And like we saw a few weeks ago, the speaking in tongues at Pentecost, this too was a very visible and public miracle. And it astounded those who saw it. It amazed them. It got their attention. And they wanted to know how it was done. They wanted to know what it means. And Peter, just like we saw him do in chapter 2 after Pentecost, he tells them what it means. And three weeks ago, we looked at Peter's answer to this first miracle and how this answer provides for us a, a model testimony as how we are to be Christ's witnesses. Well, today we see another model. We see another model testimony for how we can be Christ's witnesses. So we're only going to look at, today, we're only going to look at half of Peter's response. And Lord willing, next week we'll look at the second half of the response. So Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> While he clung to Peter and John... All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God had raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us. Lord, we know that uh, without your Holy Spirit, these are just words on a page. Lord, I can't speak your truth without your Holy Spirit inspiring my words. And we, neither one of us can hear from you without your spirit opening our ears to hear from you. So, Father, I pray that you will do something amazing. You will do something mighty, that you will change us, that you will have an encounter with us. And, Lord, above all, that you will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, years ago, I, I knew this man, and he was one of those types of guys who was, you know, I'm sure some of you know him, who was good at everything. When I knew him, he was a PhD student in, in mechanical engineering. He has since graduated, has a, has a, a very uh, technical job, and, and, and he's brilliant, technically brilliant. But that, that wasn't all. He and his wife were also gifted musicians. Uh, they had beautiful voices. They would sing in worship in church, and, and it was beautiful as they would lead the, the worship. He also serves as an elder in his church. He's also a gifted athlete. He was a basketball player and a baseball player. But the thing I remember most about this man is that whenever he received a compliment, and he received many, 
You know, great job leading worship or, or congratulations on your promotion or award you got at work or, or the conference that you spoke at or hitting a home run on the, the church softball team. Whenever he received a, a compliment, his response was always the same. Praise God. Praise God. He never took credit for anything he did. He was always the first to admit that everything that he did, every ability he had was a gift from God. It was all God's grace. And we knew this couple, they, they were very young when we first met them. They were in their mid-20s. And at that time, they had difficulty having children. And they would ask for prayer. They were in our Bible study. And we'd pray every week at Bible study for them to be able to have children. And through much prayer, and, and they did do some fertility treatment, they had their first child. And we praised God. Then a few years later, they had a second child. Then a third child. Then a fourth child. Then a fifth child. Then a sixth child. Truthfully, I think I've lost child. I think they have six. They may even have more than that because they had several since we've moved away. But God had blessed them, blessed them richly, blessed this man richly, blessed his family richly. And every time he had an opportunity, he praised God. He pointed back to God. He said God was the one who gave him the ability, who gave him these blessings. God alone gave him the blessing. See, the truth is, as Christians, as followers of God, when we follow God, when we follow his ways, things usually go better for us. Not always, but usually go better for us. And when we're obedient to God, we will be blessed. And this blessing will be noticed. It will be noticed by others. And others will congratulate us. Others will admire us for these blessings that God has given to us. And the question is, what do we do with these blessings? What do we do when we're noticed by others? Are we like my friend? We use these blessings and opportunity to praise God, to give God the glory, to give God the credit. Or do we accept the praise for ourselves? Do we accept the, the glory for ourselves? Well, Peter and John were in the same situation. They had just healed a man, a man who had been disabled from birth. This man had never walked a day in his life. And at the words of Peter, this man's legs were, were immediately strengthened. His ankles were strengthened. He was not only able to walk, he was able to run and leap like a deer. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Now, in the minds of those in the temple who saw this, this miracle, Peter was the one who did it. Peter must have some, some amazing power. What we're going to look at today is how Peter answers this, how Peter takes this attention that this miracle had, and he turns it to be a witness to Christ how he's fulfilling the theme verse, right? I say this every sermon. What's the theme verse? It's Acts 1.8. It says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What we see today is a second model testimony. And it provides for us, just like the first model testimony provided for us a framework, this provides for us a second framework. It shows us how we too, how we too can turn the blessings that God gives us, the accomplishments that he does through us, to be a witness to him. So let's dive right in here. The first thing we see that Peter does is Peter denies the works righteousness paradigm. The works righteousness paradigm, which is really the default standard in this fallen world. And we see this in verse 12. Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? See, Peter knew exactly what they were thinking. They were wondering, what did Peter do? What did John do? They must have certain power to be able to, to heal this man. They must be very religious. They must be very righteous. They must be very holy to, to wield this kind of power. The answer must be in Peter. It must be in John. It was something that they did. And my friends, this is works righteousness. See, works righteousness says, I'm made right with God on account of something that I do. 
on account of my works. And this is the default religion of this fallen world. And it's the very opposite of biblical Christianity. In fact, every other religion in this world, other than biblical Christianity, is simply a variation of works righteousness. Hinduism, uh, Islam, Buddhism, secularism, scientism, even distortions of biblical Christianity, such as liberalism or fundamentalism or Catholicism, they're all based on works righteousness. So are non-biblical ideologies, all based on works righteousness. And all of these religions and all of these ideologies, they're based on something that we do. It's an attempt to earn our salvation, to earn God's favor, to earn some type of blessing or, or good fortune or good karma, or to justify, to justify the good blessing or the, the good fortune we've experienced. See, works righteousness is ubiquitous in this fallen world. And it's ubiquitous because it is simply an expression of the sin of our first parents. The sin that led to the fall itself. And what was that sin? Remember remember the, the crafty servant's temptation to Eve when she was eating to, to eat the forbidden fruit? He said, you shall not surely die. Because God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And that's the temptation. That's the temptation that led to the fall of man. The, the temptation that led to the fall of angels. The desire to be God. And works righteousness is simply the way this sin of wanting to be God is expressed. So my friends, only God is sovereign. Only God can, by his own merit, earn what he has. We are not now and never will be sovereign. We are not now and we will never be autonomous. That is independent from God. We want to be, we claim to be, but we never will be. We are contingent on him. Everything we have, the very air in our lungs the very capacity to even think a single thought, all come from God. Everything we have is from God. Everything we have is from grace. Now, works righteousness is sneaky because on a, on a horizontal level, that is, in, in our dealings with other people, works righteousness is actually valid. Right? When you go to work, when you go to, to, to a company, you give them a certain number of hours, they give you a certain amount of money. It's agreed upon rate. You earn your pay. But the problem comes in. The problem comes in when we try to take what's valid on the horizontal level, we try to apply it to the vertical level. And the vertical level is our interactions with God, our dealings with God. See, all things we have, including our time, including our skills, including our abilities, all come from God. They are all of grace. There is no way that we can earn them. But this works righteous way of thinking, it's so ingrained it's both in unbelievers and even in believers. And this, was, this will be the immediate assumption when people see our blessings, when they see things that God does through us. They will want to know, what did we do? Why are we so successful? And my friends, there'll be a temptation for us. There'll be a temptation for us to take the bait. There'll be a temptation for us to, to, to think, well, maybe it was something I did. Maybe it's something in me. There'll be a temptation for us to take the credit to take the glory. But Peter doesn't fall into this trap. He denies the works righteousness paradigm. And this is what we all must do. We must deny this works righteousness paradigm in our own testimony, in our own witness to him. Not to be witnesses to ourselves, but witnesses to him. So this is the first thing we see. Second thing we see Peter do in this response is that he starts with the truth that the audience knows and he connects that truth to Jesus. He starts with the truth that they know, and he connects that truth to Jesus. 
Let's see how he does this in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. So remember where Peter and John are. They're at the temple. And the temple is where God's people, the, the fellow Jews met. They were worshiping. And they believed in, and they worshiped the true God. They believed and they worshiped the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So Peter starts with this truth. They know the one true God. And he connects that truth to Jesus. Peter tells them that the God, that, that, that God is the one who glorified, the God that they know, the God they worship, glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter is showing them that he's not worshiping a foreign God. He's, the power didn't come from, from some other place. It came from the same God that they worship. He affirmed what they already believed. He starts with a truth that they hold in common. And then from that truth, he connects that truth to Jesus. And this is the same approach that we'll see in many chapters when we get to chapter 17 that Paul takes in Acts 17 when he's preaching in the city of Athens. Now, Athens is not Jerusalem. Athens is a pagan city. It's, it's filled with much idolatry. And as a good Jew, Paul is, is horrified by, he's troubled by all this idolatry he sees. And I remember a, a couple of years ago when our family was in, was in Rome, Rome, Italy, not Rome, Georgia, we, several of us were, were troubled by the idolatry that we saw in, in several of these medieval Catholic churches that we visited. We saw people coming in and kissing the, the feet of a statue of Mary. We saw in one of these churches, it was a basilica, they had this door, and when this door was opened on the year of Jubilee, you could make a donation. If you walked through that door, all your sins would be forgiven. We saw an, another, we went to St. Uh, Peter's Basilica, in the Vatican itself, and in there, there's a, there's a museum. And in that museum are statues, not statues of saints, but statues of Greek and Roman gods, Zeus and, and, and Jupiter, and all these statues are there, pagan statues inside a church. And one church we went to, they supposedly had, had the wood from the manger that Jesus was placed in when Jesus was born. And there was such idolatry and superstitions that it was, it was troubling to my family. Some of them had difficulty even staying in some of these churches when they were hearing these things. And this is the way Paul felt when he was in Athens. All this idolatrous and, and idols and pagans stuff around, this is the way Paul felt. But Paul found truth in Athens, even in this pagan culture. And he used this truth as a, as a point of contact. And he connected this truth to Jesus. See, Paul recognized that these people in Athens, they were all very religious. They had statues and they had altars to every single god that you can imagine. And they even had an altar to the unknown god, just in case they forgot a god. And that was Paul's point of connection. He grabbed onto that and he says, I know this unknown god. I'm going to introduce you to this unknown god. And he brought them to Jesus and he connected it to Jesus. Well, Peter makes this connection to the people in the temple, just as we've seen who had just seen this miraculous healing. And he shows him that Jesus is God's servant. That opposition to Jesus is really opposition to God. And my friends, this is the same approach we must take. We, when we're filling our calling to, to be Jesus' witness, where he places, we are to look for, for a common truth. We're gonna, the people we're talking to, we're going to look at something that they have in truth and then take that truth and connect it to Jesus somehow. A good example of this is the 20th century missionaries, Don and Carol Richardson, and they brought the gospel to the, the Sawi people in, in New Guinea. And I've, I've mentioned them before. See, the Sawi people, they were headhunters. And they were cannibals. And they, their highest value that they prized was treachery. And the book that, about their, about their uh, mission work 
It starts off with this really troubling story about how they befriended, people in one tribe befriended a man in another tribe. And they befriended him and they, they started uh, dealing with him for several months. And then they invited him over to a dinner in his honor. The thing is, he was going to be the dinner. And then they, he talks about how they, uh, they're, they're all laughing and having this good time. And then they all turn on him. And they turn on him and they watch his expression. And they see him be, from, from joy and, and, and then... Then they see the confusion, and then they see the shock, and they see the horror as they brutally beat him to death, and they actually literally had him for dinner. This is the people that they brought the gospel to. And the Richardsons, they would share the gospel stories about Jesus to them. And who do you think they saw as the hero? It was Judas. They didn't care anything about Jesus. They liked Judas because he fit. He was the treacherous one. But then they had a breakthrough. And their breakthrough is when they discovered this long-held tradition among multiple tribes there. It was called the Peace Child. See, these people valued treachery and keep them from having all-out war all the time. What they did is the chief of one village would exchange a son. One of their children would go to the other village, and that other chief would give one of their children to the first village. And they would raise the children. The children would be perfectly safe there unless there was a war. If one of the tribes attacked the other tribe, then they would kill the peace child. And this peace child guaranteed guaranteed peace among the uh, tribes because they knew that their chief's son or daughter was in this other tribe. And this was the analogy that they needed. And, the, and they used this to, to point to God. They point to the great chief, the great chief who sent his son, Jesus, to be the ultimate peace child. So they found that connection. So that's what we do, must do. We must make this connection. So that's the second point. Third thing we see in Peter's response and this is going to be the difficult, most difficult part, is that he not, only he, he not only demonstrates knowledge to him, he demonstrates the need, the, the, the hearer's personal need for Jesus. He demonstrates a personal need for Jesus. To put it in the words that we frequently hear from this pulpit, you got to get them lost before you get them saved. And that's what Peter does. Peter gets them lost by clearly showing that they are guilty, personally guilty for rejecting Jesus. And we see this in verses 13b to 15, where it says, God's servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. See, see Peter pulls no punches here. He makes it clear to his hearers that they are currently on the wrong side of Jesus. And this is the same Jesus who healed the man. This is the same Jesus who is God's holy servant. This is the same Jesus who is a servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's even more than that. Jesus is called the righteous one. Jesus is called the author of life. These are not everyday titles. These are titles of God only, divine titles. So Peter is unequivocally stating that Jesus is God. Not only are they on the wrong side of God's servant, they are on the wrong side of God himself. And then Peter Peter stabs the knife into the heart of their pride and self-righteousness when he says that they chose a murderer. They chose Barabbas to go free, and they killed the author of life, Jesus. And this shows really the, the natural progression of sin. It leads to death. Sin and death, sin is anti-life. And the purpose of this part of Jesus' testimony is to make it personal. He makes it personal to his hearers. 
<clears throat> this is not just an interesting idea. These are not just some facts that Peter's telling him. This is not something that's going to make him smarter and give him general wisdom. No, this is something that affects them personally. Whenever there's a, a, a big event going on in the world, I always watch it on the news. You know, I watched when, when they had the Hamas strike on, on Israel. I watched that. I watched the details of what's going on. When, when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, I would watch the details and try to get as much as, as possible. But the biggest story in one week in April of 2007, the biggest story in the world, was the mass shooting at Virginia Tech. I didn't watch any of the coverage there. I didn't want to see talking heads pontificating on why this tragedy took place and how we could have prevented. I didn't want to hear the stories of the personal victims because I knew many of them. This story was too close to home. This was too personal. I knew the people affected. I was affected. It was too personal. It was too painful. I didn't want to hear it. But that's what Peter is doing here. Peter is making it personal. He's making them here because it affects them personally. And Peter is really treading on, on dangerous ground. He's not, explain, he's not just explaining how he healed a lame man. He's warning them. He's warning that the same power that healed this lame man, this power is opposed to them, is opposed to them personally. But it's even more than that. Peter then convicts them. Peter tells them, you are guilty. Each one of you are guilty. He's telling them that they are personally responsible for the abuse, for the rejection, for the murder of God's own son. My friends, this type of testimony is extremely dangerous. It's like playing with dynamite. This testimony gets people killed. It can get Peter in big trouble. And we will see this in chapter 4. It does get Peter and John in big trouble. But this type of testimony also has power. And it has power to create such desperation, such desperation in those who hear it, that it will motivate them. It will motivate them to find a way out, to seek a way out, to be prepared. To be prepared to, to, it prepares them to hear the answer, to hear the truth. And that's what Peter is about to give them. And this leads to our fourth and final way that Peter provides a model for us in our testimony. Peter gives them the answer. And the answer is Jesus. We see this in verse 16. He says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. My friends, Jesus is the answer. Faith in Jesus is what physically healed the slain man. But even more importantly than that, faith in Jesus is what spiritually healed this man. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus. He is cured. He is the one who cured him of the guilt that this man had. In the same manner, Jesus is the answer to the man. Jesus is the man answer for those who are answering, who are listening. Those who are guilty of causing Jesus' death. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to us as well. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the only solution. Jesus is the only answer. I heard this story years ago. It was one before there was social media, people would send stories around by email. And I remember I heard this probably about 20 years ago. But I think this story nicely illustrates this point, how Jesus is the answer. And the story is about this wealthy man and his son who were collectors of art. And they, and they had everything in their collection. They had Picassos and Rembrandts and, and you know, millions of dollars worth of art. And they would often sit together and they would enjoy their paintings and admire it. But then a war broke out and the son was called away to fight. 
And he was very courageous, but he died in battle as he was rescuing another soldier. And the father was notified, and obviously the father deeply grieved for his son, his only son. And a few months later, there was a knock on the door, and and a young man stood there with, with a large package in his hands. And he says, sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier who your son died saving. He saved many lives that day. He was carrying me to safety. And when the bullet struck him in the heart, he died instantly as he was taking me to safety. And the young man held out a package. And he says, I know this, this isn't much, but, I, but your son often talked about how much you loved art. And I'm not a great artist, but, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. And the father opened the package to find a portrait of the son painted by the, by the soldier. And he stared in awe at the way the soldier captured the personality of his son in the painting, especially especially in the eyes. Until his own eyes, the eyes of the father, welled up in tears. And he thanked the young man. He offered to pay him for the picture. I said, no, no, your son saved my life. It's a gift to you. I don't want any money. And the father hung the, the portrait over his fireplace. And every time anyone would come to visit the father, he would always take him. He would show him the son. Say, this is my son. Not too long afterwards, the, the father died as well. And an auction was ha- held because he had all these millions of dollars worth of paintings. And many influential people gathered and excited to see all these great paintings that he had and had an opportunity to obtain one of them for their collection. Well, on the platform sat the painting of the son. And the auctioneer held out and, and pounded his gavel. We'll start the bidding with this picture of the son. What do I bid for the picture? And there was a, a long silence. And finally, a voice came from the back and said, we don't want to see that picture. We want to see the famous pictures. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted and said, who's willing to, to bid on this painting? Who will start the bidding at 100 pounds? Nothing. Because 50 pounds, nothing. Another voice angrily said, we didn't come to see those paintings. We want to see the Van Goghs. We want to see the Rembrandts. Get on with the real paintings. But the auctioneer still continued. Who will take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the back of the room. It was, it was the gardener, and he knew the son personally. He said, I'll, I'll give 10 pounds for it. He was a poor man. He didn't have much. That's all he could afford. He said, we have 10 pounds. Who will bid 20? Nothing. Here. Give it for him for 10 pounds. We want to see the masters. The crowd started to become very angry. They didn't want the picture of the son. They wanted the, the more worthy investments of the collection. And the auctioneer pounded his gavel, going once, going twice. Sold for 10 pounds. A man sitting on the second row said, all right, now let's get on with the collection. But the auctioneer laid down his gavel. He said, I'm sorry, but the, the auction is over. He says, what? What about all the famous paintings? Demanded the crowd. He said, I'm sorry, the auctioneer explained. When, when I was called to conduct this off, auction, there was a, a secret stipulation put in the will. I wasn't allowed to reveal the stipulation to this moment. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought the painting of the son would inherit the entire estate, including all the other paintings. The man who took the son gets everything. And that's the gospel. If you have the son, you have everything. If you don't have the son, you have nothing. It's even more than just millions of dollars worth of art. We are, the Bible tells us we are co-heirs with Jesus himself of everything, of all the creation. We literally, if we have the son, we literally have everything. So let me just tie everything together we had so far. In the second response of Peter, we see this model for us. We see a witness for Jesus. So what does it look like? So first thing, we recognize. We recognize that God gifts each of us, each of us in a certain way that will get attention. 
God gives us with a purpose for this gifting to be a witness to him. And second, what we need to do is reject the world's paradigm of works righteousness and refuse, refuse to take credit for these gifts that God has given us. Refuse to have them for our own glory, but rather proclaim to God's glory that they are God's grace alone. That's the second thing. Third thing, we are to look for common truth, common truth with our hearers, recognizing that all truth is God's truth. And then we make that connection to Jesus, who is truth personified. And four things we need to make it personal. We demonstrate the personal need of each and every person for Jesus. We show the need. We create this desperation for a solution for this need. And finally, fifth, we give them the solution. We give them the Son. We show them that Jesus and Jesus alone is the answer to our most urgent and eternal need. We show them that the one who has the Son has everything. The one who does not have the Son has nothing. My friends, this is our witness that we see. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Son. We thank you that you have given us Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus we have everything. And Lord, I do pray for if there are any who hear my voice who do not have Jesus. Lord, I pray that they will go to the Son. They will have the Son. And know in him we have everything. And for those of us who have the Son, those of us who have him, Lord, give us a contentment. There is so many, so much anxiety we have, so much chasing after things that do not matter. If we are in Christ, we have everything that we need. And we have you. We have your spirit to direct us. And we pray, Lord, that you will direct us. You will direct us to those that you will have us to witness to, that we will be a witness to you. And Father, we thank you for all the gifts that you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, that you will use those gifts to get people's attention and allow us to speak of you. Because the best thing, the most important thing we can do, the most eternal thing we can do is lead people who do not know you to you. We pray that you will be pleased and glorified with all we do and say. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.